This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Glennis Ryan, CFO of Insight Enterprises, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 508. What we see is a two-sided market, as we describe it. So the two sides being our building customers on one side, and then sort of important legacy capital markets considerations on the other side. And we're, we're really trying to solve to optimize both sides of, of that market. And I would say that our, our flexibility and our focus on serving our customers as those changes happen is, is really an important advantage. I, we really want to lead on the productization of office to better serve customer needs. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Michael Knox, CFO of EQ Office, a real estate investment company that today owns 80 office properties and is owned by the Blackstone Group. We speak to Michael about corporate realty's changing landscape and disruptors such as WeWork and Industrious, plus much, much more after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking to Michael Knott, CFO of EQ Office. Michael, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. As always, we like to begin by asking our guests to look back for us, Michael. And if you wouldn't mind, go back in time for us and share with us what those experiences were that you feel prepared you for a CFO role. Yeah, sure. I appreciate the question. So um, just to take a step back, I became a first-time CFO last year, uh, summer of 2018 at a Blackstone portfolio company called EQ Office. We own and provide office environments uh, for companies to thrive, as we say. But I had spent uh, about 20 years in capital markets, investment research, analyzing public real estate companies. Uh, most of that time was with a firm called Green Street Advisors, which is really well known in commercial real estate, that very influential platform among institutional investors, both listed and direct investors in commercial real estate. But I would say a big part of my career was spent analyzing you know, a lot of different real estate markets that exist. So 
meaning different asset types like office, self-storage, senior housing, but also meaning different geographic markets like New York, San Francisco, London, et cetera. Uh, and, and really each type is different, each market's different, and then all the different companies that I was analyzing over all those years, which are all unique and different. So I, I think uh, in, in summary, there's there's a lot to master and it's always changing, so it was a really great experience. But I think some of the things specifically that that role and that experience prepared me for a CFO type role were really leading teams of various sizes, which we all know is super important. Uh, in an executive and leadership role uh, like like CFO. And then uh, I'd say interacting with really smart colleagues uh, every day, C-level executives at the companies and, and investors, you know, every day for years. And um, I would say thinking really criti critically about a wide variety of challenging and really important issues that run the gamut, you know, valuation, strategy, cost of capital, how you allocate capital, transactions, financing, uh, M&A, IPOs, you know, do you expand internationally, uh, corporate governance, uh, different types of company cultures, you know, the list really goes on and on, successful deals, bad deals, what works and what doesn't. Uh, so I, I think, you, you know, you see a lot and learn a lot over a long period of time. And then, of course, the public market has its own unique song and dance, and I feel like uh, uh, learning that choreography is sort of a skill set unto its own. But uh, so even though those types of roles and experiences that I had were kind of from the outside looking in, uh, and obviously the CFO role is kind of inside looking out a bit and looking in as well. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, you're, you're obviously constantly debating opinions and points of view with, with really smart people, and that always helps uh, sort of sharpen your perspective. And, and then, of course, someone's always unhappy with what you say or write, so it kind of trains you and dealing with negative emotions and different uh, situations, which is always helpful as well. I can remember uh, plenty of angry phone calls, threats of lawsuits, uh, public disagreements, and so on and so forth. Um, and then even, you know, there was a certain real estate developer that everybody knows who's now in elected office that once tried to <laughs> sue uh, our firm <laughs> because of a colleague of mine's uh, comments in the press. Uh, this was a, a very long time ago, but... You know, we always try to call it like we saw it and, you know, not always 100% popular. But, you know, as far as uh, some of the milestones, I'd say um, when I was very early in my career, um, <clears throat> there was one that I can recall it had sort of a dual positive impact on me. I got the chance to lead the research coverage at Green Street on the office sector, which is the industry I'm in now. Uh, it's one of the main food groups and commercial real estate. It was an important role at the firm. Uh, and I would say I got that opportunity at a very young age. Uh, one of our partners left to become the CFO of a public REIT. So it was a great opportunity for me personally to sort of step function my career pretty early on and, and uh, with a lot more responsibility, but it also sort of left an impression on me that, that our partner got this great opportunity to go be a CFO to public REIT. And then um, I guess just to tie sort of a bow around that story, in the dozen years after that, uh, Green Street ended up having a second, a third, a fourth, and then uh, I was the fifth partner to to leave for CFO roles. So it became a bit of a a bit of a factory in some ways. Uh, but you know, Green Street's a, a great place, and uh, those changes were well absorbed over a long period of time. The firm continues to succeed and be a thought leader, and speaks to the uh, the brand. But I'd say those moments uh, 
seeing friends and colleagues enjoy that opportunity and success uh, <clears throat> was helpful for me in sort of preparing the thought that, hey, someday maybe I could I could do that as well. That's interesting that you said a number of your colleagues had already beat the path to the CFO office, uh, because I, I thought maybe this was a little unusual. I would say that, uh, at least in the commercial real estate industry, it's, it's probably more common for uh, those sort of on the transaction-oriented side to sort of make the leap uh, into the CFO role, so investment bankers and such, but uh, and probably a little less common for folks on the, the research or investment management side of the business to do it, but it, but there are certainly examples both uh, of Green Street and, and others. Uh, I can think of uh, at least a couple of uh, investors that made that jump as well. Um, so, so it does happen, and I think there's um, there's a lot of changes in the uh, research and investment management business that sort of make the corporate side a bit more appealing uh, for a lot of folks as well. So, but it's been a it's been a great uh, experience and uh, chance to really sharpen my skills and knowledge, which we'll talk more about. And then I would say too, if, if if you're interested, there was one other sort of milestone that I thought was important for me, and it was more on the leadership side. Uh, Sort of later in my career at Green Street, I had the opportunity to take a promotion to co-run the entire research organization at Green Street after I'd led several different areas of uh, coverage responsibility. So in that role, my partner and I managed a, a large team of 20-plus analysts, uh, which was a terrific leadership experience and a chance to learn by you know, facing some challenges of a management-heavy role and really getting to help uh, some of those talented analysts think through various issues that face, you know, the 100-plus companies that they followed and help them prioritize what issues to dive into and how to think about their teams. So really good leadership experience overall. But I think for me, as I thought about your question about specific milestones, I think I think for me at least it, it, it wasn't so much about any a singular – event or transaction that I worked on, uh, being on the research side, obviously, but really more so the steady building up of miles, if you will, on the legs through really relevant uh, industry experience and relationships and building that confidence so they could succeed in a different environment and, and really leverage those skills and experience. Um, and then also I think there's, there's some value also from being with uh, a smaller private organization for those 16 years I was there that really saw a lot of growth and change as the firm uh, matured and kind of went through its sort of uh, industry or company life cycle. I think a lot of valuable lessons in that experience as well. And it, it, so it almost strikes me as uh, kind of compounding of human capital. We always talk about compounding uh, in terms of investment returns, but I think uh, compounding on the human capital side is, is an important concept as well. And I think that's kind of how I think of my progression and, and being ready for CFO role. So tell us about uh, EQ Office and what what sets it apart from other offerings out there? Why is this, what was unique about this? What attracted you to this opportunity? Yeah, it's a good question. So just take a step back. EQ Office is owned by Blackstone, which is the world's largest real estate owner. We're one of their portfolio companies. Um, we're the successor to what used to be a dozen years ago, the largest office REIT, which Blackstone privatized 
in 2007 at the time that was the largest ever take private of a public company in any industry not just real estate but it was really a fascinating deal that that truly was saga and I lived through it as an analyst covering the company at the time and in fact it has its own chapter in a book about Blackstone that's called The King of Capital. Um, If that tells you anything, it has its own chapter, but we're really a a very different company today, and our mission at EQ is really to provide great spaces for companies and their employees. You know, we really want them to thrive, and we're trying to bring humanity back to the workplace, and we do that through owning, leasing, managing, sometimes repositioning, redeveloping office buildings, in many of the top markets across the U.S., you know, our goal being to drive returns for Blackstone's fund investors that that, um, that fund our business. And I would say for those listeners that are in Chicago, uh, keep an eye on how we're revitalizing uh, Willis Tower, the former Sears Tower, the iconic skyscraper here. Uh, we're, we're doing a lot there to really activate that that building and what's really a trophy asset and sort of bring it into the 21st century will be done with that sort of early next year. The mantra is uh, buy it, fix it, sell it, the Blackstone mantra. And that's really a good business model for office real estate given the the really intense capital uh, nature of the business and the cycles of the business. And the EQ platform leads or adds value on all aspects of, of sort of that that mission. But to, to get into your specific question, I would say our industry has really been changing a lot. What we see is a two-sided market, as we describe it. So the two sides being our building customers on one side, and then sort of important legacy capital markets considerations on the other side. And we're, we're really trying to solve to optimize both sides of, of that market. And I would say that our, our flexibility and our focus on Serving, uh, serving our customers uh, as those changes happen is, is really an important advantage. I, I think we, we really want to lead on the productization of office, uh, which is sort of a new thing to better serve uh, customer needs. And sort of in tandem with that, we're pursuing ourselves <clears throat> uh, organizational agility and curiosity and, and really trying to instill a customer mindset at, at all levels of the organization. And I think those are really our uh, calling cards. And your uh, appointment as CFO sort of signals that Blackstone wants the finance organization of EQ office to operate more robustly and perhaps more independently. They want someone of your stature of your rank and experience to energize the internal financial function of eq office am i overstating that yeah no i i I think that's fair i think uh so because a lot of finance leaders would say well wait a minute he's got blackstone as, as a parent you know where other cfos have a board perhaps you've got blackstone um, yeah, uh, Blackstone's obviously very, very involved in uh, thinking about the business, and um, I would say it's, it's a, it's definitely a symbiotic uh, relationship, and they're, they're definitely, um, I can imagine they are uh, definitely more uh, intense than the average uh, board at, at the average public company. 
you used the word agility, and I just want to underscore that. That's that's really what I think you've been brought aboard to help them achieve as far as finance function, the financial uh, robustness of this, this operation. And if I'm overstating this, point me down in another direction. But I, my, my suspicion is, is that, yeah, if you vitalize this, uh, this finance function and start uh, you know, supplying information and insight to better help uh, frontline people make decisions. I mean, is that all part of this? Yeah, that, that's certainly part of the, the rationale. And, and it could be easy for people, say, when I first uh, took the job a year or so ago, to sort of draw a conclusion that maybe Blackstone was interested in, in an IPO for this unit. I, I don't think that's, you know, uh, part, of the, part of the plans with sort of bringing someone into the role from uh, from Green Street, you know, where there's sort of a track record of, of folks becoming uh, public market CFOs. But I think uh, I think really the, the focus was on, uh, and, and particularly for uh, our CEO, Lisa Picard, who was really making the decision on, on this was, uh, you know, I think she really values intellectual curiosity and insight about markets and, uh, and, and really driving uh, the thought process that way, and and her and I, I think, are pretty well aligned in how we think about different things, and it's been a great experience uh, uh, working with her and and seeing how she leads and develops this organization. As far as the the uh, finance team or organization is concerned, what do you want that to look like? Maybe it's not uh, you don't have everybody in place yet. Maybe you do, uh, but tell us something about. Does this look like a uh, traditional finance function that you'd find in, you know, other industries, or what's what's unique about it? Yeah, I would say it's 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 a little bit unique because we, you know, we're here to to serve our customers, which is the executive team, our uh, our leadership out in the fields and all the different markets we're in, and then importantly, uh, Blackstone and their needs are are of course uh, dictated by their their business model. Uh, so there's there's a lot of focus on on valuation, of course, and uh, all kinds of things related to that. Um, and then you know our FP&A function is is um, you know probably more geared towards uh, trying to drive insights about markets and our portfolio. You know we don't necessarily focus on things like earnings or same store NOI or uh, FFO, which is a REIT centric uh, earnings measurement. Uh, you know we're we're really Trying to drive, drive the key initiatives uh, in the business, and and we can talk more about that. Yes, uh, but also, when you stepped into the role, did you find you had all the visibility that you expected into the business, and that you felt uh, you required? I guess I'm zeroing in on our uh, metrics question, and and you did mention a few, but were there others? Yeah, like I like said, we're, we're generally not a, a buy-and-hold investor, and we're also not a public REIT, so we don't really look at those things I had mentioned, like same store Y growth, et cetera. But we're really focused on driving value to facilitate exiting investments and, and generating points of view and insights about markets uh, to partly help identify themes and to underwrite acquisitions on the Blackstone side. Um, so I, I think I'd say for key blocking and tackling, you know, we're really looking at things like how much leasing are we doing to fill space, uh, where are we falling a bit short, 
uh, how are the economic terms of the leases we're signing? Uh, could we be doing a better job on, on driving terms? Are we retaining our tenants? Uh, are we managing our inventory of space we have to lease? Uh, you know, the capital spend at, at, to manage the physical improvement? Are we harvesting value the way as much as we should be in terms of uh, moving product through the disposition process when, once they're ready to sort of harvest value? So there's all those kinds of considerations, and, and those are really the metrics that we sort of focus on in evaluating the business. Uh, non-financial metrics are also something we're asking finance leaders about these days. Uh, are there any non-financial metrics which have come on the radar for you and, and something you pay increasingly atten uh, attention to? Yeah, I think the thing that comes to mind on that is we, we have uh, I'd say an obsessive focus on uh, looking at, at and tracking um, job postings and, and, and intent to hire across our different markets as we feel like that's uh, uh, a really important leading indicator for, for demand. So there's there's a lot to chew on with that and lots of different uh, angles. Uh, and so we're, we're really trying to, uh, I think, craft in a better way how we how we do that. So there's there's a lot there. You've uh, stated, I think, more than once that uh, there's a, quite a bit of disruption going on in the market. And, of course, many of us have probably uh, uh, read about WeWork, and, and uh, that particular model has gotten both good and bad headlines, I think. Uh, tell us about that disruption that's going on. What is it that you see? Yeah, so a minute ago I, I talked about how we're trying to serve a what we see as a two-sided market, which is different than, than how it used to be. And to elaborate a bit more on that, I'd say in the office business, I'd say as a generalization, uh, this industry was historically more, you know, a one-sided market where the customer needs really weren't as important or as obsessed over as in other industries, like say a Jeff Bezos and Amazon is famous for. Uh, instead, you know, the owners typically were primarily serving what we would describe as the capital market concerns or considerations really to secure attract debt or equity capital uh, as an example. And clearly that's an important objective. It's self-evident. I don't have to tell finance types that are listening to us chat uh, that that's important. But I think critically uh, a, a real lack of obsession over the customer in this industry left an opening for others to come in and start to really meet the customer needs, like a WeWork or an Industrious, which is uh, a peer of theirs in, in what we call the flexible office category, sometimes called co-working, uh, but I think flexible office is probably a better term. Uh, that model existed for a long time in a smaller way with a company like Regis, for example, um, but there there's no doubt that in the last 10 years, that whole business has been completely sort of reimagined and, and sort of marketed as a, a sexier Thing for customers and its growth this cycle has really been nothing short of spectacular as evidenced by the uh, I think 47 billion dollar uh, last uh, valuation for, for WeWork but you know this is really the key disruption that office has seen in recent years and it takes you know a few forms really the the customers are increasingly opting for effective over efficient when it comes to space selection and how they manage their space and consume their space. So there's uh, now, I, we think, a greater chance to serve our customers by helping them win the very important war for talent, which is, which is very real given the path for growth that many companies are seeking 
and the intense competition for human capital in this historically low unemployment environment, you know, uh, CEOs of all kinds of companies routinely cite talent considerations as a top risk they face in their businesses. And uh, from a real estate standpoint, the location and type of space is really an important part of a company's culture and its image uh, more so than ever. And, and we're really helping our customers by providing products, space, amenities, and lease terms that help them succeed and provide the culture they want to offer uh, current and, and importantly, prospective employees. And, you know, the old days, the office industry was really providing kind of, you could almost think of it as raw materials, a, a long-term uh, you know, term lease, you could take it or leave it, so to speak, and uh, again, primarily serving those capital markets considerations by trying to maximize lease duration. Uh, but the problem with providing sort of only the raw materials and just one flavor of that term lease is, you know, not every business can make a five, seven, or ten-year space decision, not knowing their path for growth beyond a couple-year period. So we're trying to provide more of a suite of product offerings as that marketplace has evolved and that's what customers want and, and need. And, you know, maybe they can't commit to a 10-year lease or maybe they don't have time to sign a long-term lease and then wait many months for space to get built out. Uh, maybe they'd rather lease what we call a pre-built suite that's kind of ready to move in with shorter terms that's more flexible. Uh, in other cases, customers may want even more tailored solutions. That would be kind of the WeWork answer. Uh, or if the pain point for them is not about speed or flexibility, maybe it's about culture, which is so important today, uh, and space obviously plays into that. So maybe some of those companies want to outsource their corporate culture entirely, which is uh, important, and that's part of the WeWork uh, attraction, WeWork and others, you know, that you know, kind of offer that cool culture. And so, you know, this trend overall in the business uh, is really important, brings challenges and opportunities. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Industrious, which is a WeWork competitor, uh, is an important partner for us, and we have a great project with them at a large campus in L.A. that we're redeveloping and repositioning, and we signed a deal with them almost a year ago where their influence on our campus is, is really tremendous. They're sort of managing the entire uh, uh, common area space and activating the entire campus, and the deal structure itself was sort of innovative and has really gained traction across the industry in the last 12 months. Uh, and, and importantly, that relationship at that property expands the funnel of potential customers at the property, which is another really important aspect of, of industry disruption that I haven't even touched on, but sort of the widening and changing nature of the sort of the funnel of customer acquisition uh, channels. Um, so with all these changes the last five years, uh, the office business really has been part of a revolution, not even an evolution. It's, uh, it's sort of a brave new world, and, and that's evidenced by uh, sort of the size and prominence of WeWork, but there's also lots of other competitors that are important uh, in the business and sort of speak to how the, the space is changing, how uh, space is differently procured, consumed, et cetera, today. Thank you. That's a great overview. Appreciate that. We want to uh, jump to our, uh, what is our signature question, where we ask finance leaders to share a strategic moment during the course of their career when their lines of sight as a finance leader allowed them to see a risk or an opportunity and uh, respond, change, change the business model, change the direction of the team, whatever it may have been. And again, it doesn't have to be uh, uh, while you were at EQ office. It might have been earlier in your career. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, I think it's a really terrific question. And um I think having, uh, you know, being relatively new on the corporate side of things, I, I think the example that, that 
I sort of thought about with this question was related more so to an insight that was um, uh, in my prior career that was helpful to, I think, real estate investors and owners and, and really could have been uh, helpful to sort of portfolio orientation and, and an investment approach in, in the office business. And what that was was, I think it was probably eight years or so ago, quite, quite a long time ago, but when I was an analyst, uh, I had authored a, a thought piece on CapEx, capital expenditures, in the office business and how high of a burden it was, uh, especially in different types of markets, different types of office products and such, and how impactful in a, in a negative way it is to investment returns that are ultimately realized in the business, um, and that it was really an even larger load than everyone thought or imagined. And, and what's turned out to be true in the last eight years was that not only was it true, but it was probably even more true than I even realized at the time. It's been uh, definitely a capital-intensive uh, time period for office, partly because of some of the changes I've, I've spoken about where uh, companies really uh, want amenities and, and all kinds of uh, things in, in their space and in the buildings that really help drive culture and attract talent. Uh, obviously, those things require capital, and it, it's been uh, all kinds of owners uh, making all these changes, and so it's, it's, it's an expensive business. Capital has been, um, uh, capital expenditures have been pretty high this cycle for office, and, and they're usually high anyway, but uh, the cycle's been definitely a challenge and it's been harder to retain tenants and more expensive when you have to lease uh, space to a new tenant to backfill someone who left. That kind of came to me as, as I was thinking about your question and, you know, on, on the CapEx side, you have tenant improvements and leasing commissions and long periods, sometimes a free rent when you sign or renew a lease and there's tons of capital that, that sometimes need to be spent improving the building. Uh, so, so really in this business, you need, you need good leasing, you need uh, really good operating and real estate acumen, and you also need a large checkbook and uh, access to capital. And I, I do think the the Blackstone EQ tandem really checks all those boxes for for success in the business. But that was sort of the uh, the finance strategic moment that sort of came to mind when I was thinking about this question. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Again, we're going to jump to our mentoring round where I'll ask you several quick questions intended to sure. uh, inspire as well as advise future sure. uh, finance leaders. What's what's exciting you today about finance and business? Not 10 years ago, but today. Right. Yeah, as we've talked about during this, this chat, sort of infusing a lot of what we talked about, disruption really is everywhere, you know, in business, technology, even finance itself. I could see some forms of disruption and change uh, in the investment management industry. 
when I was on that side of things. But really that disruption is everywhere you look, and it's true even in the business of owning and leasing office space, as, as I just spoke about. Uh, so, it's, so it's a really challenging but immensely engaging and interesting time to be a business executive and to, to sort of observe and participate in all this change and try to figure it all out. So, uh, you know, I'd say beyond, beyond even that, that old saying that, that knowledge is power uh, and sort of related to that, I think, I think we're really in the early innings of harnessing the power of data uh, as, as sort of a, a business industry and, and turning it into valuable insights. You know, I think you have to get there, and we're, we're, we're sort of in early stages of trying to do that. I really think that BI is, is the future, so I would encourage uh, folks who are earlier in their career than I am to uh, focus on, on those types of things. I think the BI is, is a business intelligence and analytics. I think those are, those are really the future. What is that piece of advice? Now, it's, it's coming up in a year since I think you, you stepped into the role so uh, right. <laughs> go back to that first 90 days. What is that piece of advice you wish someone had shared with you about, st- you know, taking on a CFO role? What What is that piece of advice? Yeah, I think you could almost say it as simple as just that it, that it really is as challenging as everyone said. And uh, I, I think there, you know, I think there are, uh, there's just no way around that. Sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. And, um, and so I think it, it really is a, a challenging Proposition a steep learning curve uh, to to uh, to manage, but but it's it's definitely been a great experience. And I I think another piece of advice that's worth uh, talking about is that I, I believe in the power of uh, networking and continuous learning. And I sometimes say that uh, I describe that networking as is a verb, meaning active tense. I think it should be an actively uh, participated uh, endeavor. I think it's important to keep up. Keep up your network for the benefit of others as well as as yourself, uh, and staying fresh and sharp. And a couple examples of that, you know, my opportunity to participate in the search process for the role that I have now uh, really stemmed in part from a critical introduction that someone in my network uh, uh, who presented me with the opportunity and knowledge of this uh, search uh, that was there. Uh, and I think another example of the sort of the power of network. Networking and, and maybe a more everyday sense of, of that advice, uh, not necessarily job related, but you know the advice that networking networking is a verb. I, I'd say I recently had a really um, uh, interesting meeting in New York with someone that I knew a little bit uh, over the years. He was on probably what you'd describe as like the outer fringes of, of my network, but I'd ran into him at a conference recently, and so we followed that up. What ended up being a really stimulating meeting in person trading views and and uh so maybe the advice on networking is related to career opportunities or whatnot uh i think more so it could also be related to you know maybe helping someone else who's looking for a job or advice or, or whatnot or maybe like the example i just shared where you're connecting with someone and, and really learning from them and uh where, where it can be a mutually beneficial exchange of ideas and points of view and information so it can be all, all those things just a more personal uh, question. Do you have a habit or a, a daily routine that you believe has contributed uh, to your professional success in some way over time? Yeah, I, I do. I think it's a really good question. I'd say I, I, I work hard. I'm sort of always on, um, maybe, maybe more than I should be. I probably should unplug a bit more than I do. Uh, but I think it's important to, uh, one, have interests outside of work. 
two, I think it's really important to be physically active. And, and three, I think it's also important to get rest and to be able to take some time away at times. And I, I try to do all those things. And I think for me, there's, there's really no doubt that if I'm able to get some rest uh, and some intense physical activity almost every day, that I'm a better executive, I'm more creative, and, and, and I'm a better person. And I think, uh, you know, uh, ha- having, having a life outside of work the best you can, you know, is, I think, really important, uh, you know, whether it's uh, family or interests outside of work. And I, I think also it's really important that the, everyone knows that the, the power of rest and getting proper sleep and exercise is really paramount, uh, period. I, I think I believe very strongly in all those things. So it's really important to be efficient and effective with your time. I think all those things are important to that. Is your uh, let me put it this way? Is your smartphone at, at, on your bedside table? Are you looking at emails in bed? Uh, maybe for a few minutes uh, before bed and and uh, when I wake up. But you emphasize sleep, and I, I think a big part of uh, uh, well, a lot of damage is being done by screens and smartphones uh, and Could, what have you. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah. I meant to ask you about a book. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? And again, we're not looking for finance books necessarily, uh, but what? anything come to mind? Yeah, I'll give uh, two books, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, no pun intended, but bookends uh, of sort from uh, a time in, the life, time in my life standpoint of when I read them. Uh, one that I read long ago when I was an undergrad and I think whose lessons on uh, risk always stuck with me and it was a really fun read uh, about the history of risk it's called uh, against the gods by peter bernstein i think a lot of finance folks are familiar with the book but i thought that was uh, such a good read and I, I think it was just so interesting and it doesn't it, it pertains to finance obviously but it but it's not exclusively related to finance so i think it's uh one of those uh, all-time favorite books of mine and then I would throw out for the finance folks that are listening, uh, last year I, I, I think I benefited from reading uh, a, a book called A Guide to CFO Success uh, by a guy named Samuel uh, Durgle, uh, who who's an expert on recruiting and evaluating, studying CFOs and the CFO role. Wow, Sam Durgle. He's been on the podcast with us, so we, we like oh, Sam. But that's a great choice. And uh, yeah, Against the Gods. I think it's been um, – it certainly has been more than a year uh, since someone's recommended it. So a great selection and one we should uh, reference uh, more often, I think. Uh, so thank you for those. We're, we're up to our uh, final question. What are your priorities in the coming 12 months as a CFO? What are those priorities? Yeah, I'd say at a summary level, it's really developing and leading the corporate finance team here through – continued progression in, in our strategic roadmap that, that we have as a corporate finance organization. Uh, I'd say beyond that, uh, some key things would be delivering some wins for the organization and looking at what processes can be taken away. We're, we're undertaking a uh, sort of a systems audit, uh, trying to really uncover things that can be can be removed. You know, I think as an organization has been around for a long time, it's easy for processes to be layered on top of each other over time and, and it can really get in the way of optimal organizational agility and we're we're sort of trying to think of everything that we do as everything is out and what what needs to be put back in to sort of function optimally uh, so that's kind of the mindset we're trying to take with that so that's kind of a process we're about to to embark on uh, 
And then I'd, I'd say the other thing I mentioned earlier, sort of in concert with my comments on BI initiatives or BI, we really want to make uh, some tangible progress on, on our BI initiatives that, that we have to really drive value and insights and to really make uh, the organization and the evaluation of how we're doing on KPIs and things like that make it easier to, uh, to ascertain. So those, those are really the key objectives, I'd say, at a high level for the next 12 months. CFO Michael Knott, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you. I really appreciate being on. Thanks for the invitation. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.